Hello, my name is Alexander Goodman and I'm the host of the Antiquity in Question podcast. Like the Greek history podcast, we discuss topics such as classical Greece, the Hellenistic period, the Carthaginian world, the Roman Empire and more archaeological topics such as Egypt. We publish two episodes a month and tackle questions like whether Constantine really was a Christian emperor or was the fall of the Roman Republic inevitable and also what was the cause of the Punic Wars. If any of these topics interest you, give us a listen. You can find us on most podcasting sites and also on YouTube. I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. Episode 105, Carthage Enters the War. Following the Battle of Cyzicus and the restoration of the Athenian democracy, from 410 to 409 BC, a hodgepodge of military and political maneuverings achieved more losses than gains for both Athens and Sparta. The Athenians in particular lost control of the Megarian port of Nisiae and their Mycenaean fort of Pylos and a civil war on Corsaira removed their greatest ally, the Corsarians, entirely from the war. On the other hand, although the Spartans recovered Pylos from the Athenians, they suffered losses at their colony of Heraclea and Trachis, when a local raid killed their governor, and on the island of Thassos, which saw the expulsion of its pro-Spartan oligarchy and its garrison. But even still, Possibly the greatest damage to the Spartan cause was the re-entry of Carthage into Sicilian affairs after a 70-year sabbatical. This would force the Syracusans to withdraw their fleet from the Aegean and Hellespont, an action which deprived the Spartans of their ablest, most daring, and most determined naval allies. As we discussed in episode 99, the Dorian Greek city-state of Selenus and the Alemnian city of Segesta shared a long history of conflict. They both were located in western Sicily, close to the Punic cities of Machia, Solus, and Panormus, which, although politically independent of Carthage, were of strategic importance, as they were key coordinates on the trade routes that linked Carthage with Italy and Greece. So Carthaginian interest in Sicily was driven by their desire to protect this trade route, in the seven years since the Battle of Himera, Carthage had expanded their domain in northern Africa, explored new trade routes on the Atlantic coasts of Africa and Europe, had pacified Sardinia, and even entered into peaceful and lucrative trade relations with the Greeks. By consolidating their markets and finding new trading patterns, the Carthaginians in the 5th century BC had amassed a huge hoard of gold and silver. The Greeks were well aware of the growing power of Carthage, which is why Athens and Syracuse all had sought aid from them in the last decade. In fact, it was because the Carthaginians declined to give aid to Segesta for another border dispute and raid by Selenus that led to Athens' involvement in the Second Sicilian Expedition. At that time, Carthage had chosen to continue to adhere to their peace treaty and not to intervene in Sicilian affairs, 
despite the fact they must have known that a victory by Selenus over Segesta would likely have led to a strong, hostile Greek power in western Sicily, capable of threatening their trade interests. At that point, they presumably were not willing to gamble a war with Syracuse. However, the geopolitical situation on Sicily in the latter 410s BC would lead at least some Carthaginians to change their mind. After the Athenians were defeated by the Syracusans, the Lemnian city of Segesta, who had allied themselves with Athens, feared that they would pay a penalty for the wrong that they had inflicted upon the Sicilian Greek city-states, in particular Syracuse, since they had invited Athens to come to Sicily in the first place. So in 410 BC, when the Selenuntians tried to initiate hostilities with them once again for a land dispute near the Mazaris River, the Segestans withdrew from the disputed territory on their own free will, not wishing to give the Syracusans an opportunity to join their allies in a war to exact revenge and utterly destroy them. But when the Selenuntians relentlessly continued to raid their territory and even tried to carve off a large portion of Segestan land that was not disputed, Segesta sent ambassadors to Carthage, begging them for protection. Although the Carthaginian Senate was willing to hear their pleas, they were hesitant to commit to assisting them just yet, as they too feared the intervention on the Selenuntian side of the Syracusans, who had just defeated the Athenians and proven themselves to be very strong militarily. But several factors ultimately would change their minds. First, Diodor says that the Segestans decided to submit to Carthage and become a dependent ally. The terms are unclear, but it probably meant that Segesta would get to retain their internal and commercial autonomy, but in return for Carthaginian protection, they would surrender control of their foreign policy. They would pay for any garrison house in Alemnian territory, and perhaps they would pay annual tribute. Second, Carthage's foremost citizen at that time was a man named Hannibal Mago, not to be confused with the Hannibal Barca, who later fought Rome. He held sovereign power as one of the two annually elected Carthaginian Cephetes, an office somewhat similar to the Roman consulship. He was from the Maganid clan, and he was the grandson of Hamilcar, who had fought and died at the Battle of Himera, and the son of Gesco, who had been exiled because of Hamilcar's defeat and had ended his life in Selenus. So for Hannibal, there were other, more personal considerations for a Sicilian intervention. He by nature was not a fan of the Greeks, and at the same time, he wished to rectify the disgrace that had fallen upon his ancestors. So he came forward in favor of helping the Segestans and made it known that he would supervise the undertaking in the event that it should lead to war. Therefore, after the Senate debated the matter at length, the influence of Hannibal finally secured a verdict for accepting Segestan submission to the Punic hegemony and for lending aid to Segesta. They selected him to be the general of the operation and gave him the authorization to aid Segesta by any means necessary. Hannibal first sought diplomacy as he sent an embassy to the Selenuntians, proposing that he would allow them to keep the disputed territory in exchange for a ceasefire with the Segestans. It's likely that this was a calculated move by Hannibal in order to give the Carthaginians, who had no standing army of their own, enough time to levy and mobilize their troops. If by some chance the Segestans should accept his offer, it would have been a win-win for both Hannibal and Carthage, as he would have enlarged Carthage's domain, with Segesta formally becoming a dependency now, and ensured Segestan security, 
without having to spend any resources on a war. While the Carthaginian offer was debated in the council of the Selenuntians, and Empidion, a citizen who had close Punic ties, strongly advocated that they accept Hannibal's terms in order to avoid a conflict with Carthage. Ultimately, though, he was not enough, and his fellow Selenuntians voted to decline the Carthaginian offer. So now that war seemed inevitable, in an attempt to ensure that the Syracusans did not become militarily involved in the dispute, Carthage and Segesta together dispatched a diplomatic envoy to Syracuse in order to request that the Syracusans first arbitrate the matter regarding the territory in dispute. The Selenuntians likewise also sent ambassadors. Though ostensibly Hannibal pretended to be seeking justice, he likely knew that the Selenuntians would refuse to agree to submit their case to arbitration, which then would force the Syracusans to not back their cause. As it was, this strategy delivered the desired result, and when the Segestans and Carthaginians declared war on the Selenuntians, the Syracusans voted not to get involved and to maintain both their alliance with Selenus and the status quo of peace with Carthage. And so Carthaginian diplomacy had managed to isolate Selenus for the time being, and Hannibal now had a free hand to deal with them without the fear of outright interference from Syracuse. After the return of their ambassadors with the news, Hannibal sent ahead a small mercenary force of 5,000 Libyan and 800 companion horsemen to Segesta. At the same time, the Selenuntians deployed in battle order and began to lay waste on their borderlands. Since their army was far superior than the Segestans, they achieved this with relative ease. But with the arrival of the Carthaginian mercenaries, the Segestans were able to turn the tide. By attacking when it was not expected, they easily put the Selenuntians to flight, killing about a thousand of them and capturing all of their loot. Segesta was secure from Greek raids for the moment, as the Greeks retreated back to Selenus after their clobbering. Then, both sides dispatched ambassadors once again. The Segestans to the Carthaginians for more forces, and the Selenuntians to the Syracusans for them to intervene. Both the Carthaginians promised more aid, and the Syracusans agreed to give their assistance, and so began the Second Greco-Punic War. Over the winter of 410-409 BC, Hannibal began to make preparations for war. He enlisted many mercenaries, called upon allied cities of the Punic hegemony to contribute contingents for the army, and readied the fleet to convey the armies across to Sicily. This fleet consisted of 60 Carthaginian triremes, as well as 1,500 transports loaded with siege engines, fighting equipment, and all other accessories. According to Ephorus, Hannibal had with him 200,000 infantry and 4,000 cavalry, but Timaeus records around 100,000 men in total. Modern estimates, though, place the army strength at about 40,000. Whatever the size, the mercenaries and allies that fought in the Carthaginian army came from Libya, Numidia, Iberia, Gaul, Sardinia, Campania, and Greeks from Magna Graecia. The Libyans and Iberians supplied the bulk of the heavy and light infantry and formed the most disciplined units of the army. Both heavy infantry fought in a close, dense phalanx formation, but the Libyans were armed with long spears, round shields, helmets, and linen cuirasses while the Iberians carried heavy throwing spears, long body shields, and short thrusting swords, and wore purple-bordered white tunics and leather headgear. Both Iberian and Libyan light infantries carried javelins and a small shield. 
In addition, the Gauls, Sardinians, and Campanians also fought in the infantry. They wore their native gear, but often were equipped with Carthaginian weapons. As for the cavalry, the Libyans, Libyo-Phoenicians, and Carthaginian citizens provided disciplined, well-trained horsemen equipped with thrusting spears and round shields. Numidia contributed superb light cavalry armed with javelins and riding without bridle or saddle. Iberians and Gauls also provided cavalry, which relied on the all-out charge. The Carthaginian officer corps held overall command in the army. Each individual unit fought under their own chieftain, but the Carthaginian officer corps held overall command of the army. The following spring of 409 BC, Hannibal crossed the Libyan Sea and landed in southwestern Sicily on a promontory called Lilibium. At the same time, some Selenuntian cavalry witnessed his landing, so they sped back to their city to inform their fellow citizens of the presence and great size of the enemy's force. The Selenuntians at once prepared their defenses, called all of their citizens from outside the city behind their walls, and collected provisions, all in order to withstand a siege, while requests for immediate help were sent to Acragus, Gela, and Syracuse. After their landing, Hannibal had all of his triremes hauled up in the bay at Machia, as he wished to give the Syracusans the impression that he didn't intend to sail against their city. Then, Hannibal allowed one day rest for his soldiers. And after adding to his army those supplied by the Segestans and other Sicilian Punic allies, he led them toward Selenus. Along the way, they captured the city of Mazara, which was a Selenuntian outpost that would go on to serve as a supply base for the Punic army during the rest of this campaign. The city of Selenus itself sat on a hill that gently sloped on its western, northern, and eastern sides. Its seaward side to the south contained its Acropolis and sat between the rivers Selenus and Hypsas. The city's agora was slightly north of the Acropolis, and there were two harbors on the west and east of the hill, on the mouths of the two rivers. Beyond these were two additional hills, one to the west and one to the east. On top of these hills were located some of the city's suburban temples. Upon their arrival, the Carthaginian army camped on the westernmost of these three hills before commencing siege operations against the city's walls. The exact location of Selenus's walls cannot be traced, but it seems to have covered only the inner hill on which the city stood. Selenus probably had between 3,000 and 5,000 soldiers for its own defense, and no mercenaries to augment their numbers. Therefore, they desperately waited for the arrival of their Syracusan, Akragan, and Galoan allies. Hannibal was well aware of this deficiency, and so he did everything in his power to capture the city as quickly as possible before the reinforcements could arrive. Instead of building circumventing walls and starving the Greeks into submission, he chose the more exhausting and dangerous but direct method of attacking the city head-on with the help of siege equipment. In doing so, he divided his army into two parts, with one detachment on the eastern side of the city to foil any approaching Greek relief army, while the other half prepared to besiege the city's walls. Some dragged up six wooden siege towers to those walls on the city's northern side, while others carried battering rams to the city's gates. The battering rams were plated with iron to secure them against fire from enemy missiles. 
On the other hand, the siege towers were built taller than the city's walls, so that a large number of archers and slingers could keep up a constant stream of downward missiles into the city to keep back Selenontian defenders, while their battering rams beat down the gates. To make matters worse, the Selenuntines had neglected the repair of their city's walls, because instead, they had spent so much effort and money on a series of magnificent temples, which we described in great detail in episode 58. Diodorus also says that they had never experienced being besieged before. Therefore, when they saw the great size of these siege engines and the large number of troops, they were filled with dread and dismay at the unprecedented danger before them. However, even though they knew how catastrophic the consequences of a defeat would be for them, they did not capitulate as they maintained the hope that they could hold out long enough for their allies to arrive. When Hannibal's siege engines punched holes in their fragile defenses, and he threw waves of fresh troops at the breaches in order to infiltrate their city, all able-bodied Selenuntian men donned armor and mounted a desperate and fierce defense. Carthaginian penetration was also impeded thanks to their inability to clear away the rubble of the punch through walls as they progressed. At the same time, elder Selenuntians and the children carried supplies to the walls and aided with makeshift repairs, while the women prepared all of their meals. As a result, after an all-day battle, the Selenuntians were able to keep Hannibal's troops at bay. And so, at nightfall, he ordered them to break off their assault and to retire to their camp. That night, the Selenuntians used the ceasefire to repair the damage to their walls and to send a second set of messengers each to Acragus, Gela, and Syracuse in order to inform them of the day's happenings and to request that their aid immediately come to Selenus. Although Acragus and Gela were the closest, they had yet to mobilize their forces as both had opted first to wait for the Syracusan response. Meanwhile, the first set of Selenuntian horsemen could have reached Syracuse in two days' time, and it likely would have taken the Syracusan army another five days after that to mobilize and reach Selenus. So at the very minimum, Selenus would be on their own for seven days. But that's if the Syracusans responded with the utmost urgency. At the time, the Syracusans were engaged against Leontini and Naxos, but when the Selenuntian messengers reached them and informed them of the situation, they immediately broke off hostilities against their neighbors and began to gather a large relief army. However, despite the fact that they must have taken the dire news very seriously, the speed of their preparations indicates they at least believed that Selenus would be able to hold out for a long time against the assaults. The assumption, though, turned out to be erroneous, because the Carthaginians were much more superior at siege warfare than anything that the Syracusans must have experienced before. In fact, the Syracusans had just staved off the Athenians for three years. At the time, the Athenians had the reputation among the Greeks as being the most formidable in siege warfare, but they paled in comparison to Near Eastern and North African powers, and the ultimate result was that the siege would last for only 10 days well before the relief force would arrive. Meanwhile, back at Selenus, Hannibal renewed his efforts the following day. Archers and slingers positioned on top of the six siege towers again cleared the walls of Greek defenders, and six battering ramps again were employed against the walls. Again, several holes were made, 
But this time, the Carthaginians began to clear the rubble away, and then groups of soldiers assaulted the apertures in waves. Once the walls were breached, the Selenuntians abandoned their effort to defend them. When the Carthaginians finally gained access to the city, progress was still painfully slow though, as the Selenuntian men gathered in bands and created barricades at the entrances of each narrow street in order to defend their city. For the next nine days, there was intense hand-to-hand fighting in the streets, while the women, children, and old men rained tiles and bricks down upon the heads of the Carthaginian troops. Despite heavy casualties, there were just way more Carthaginians, and the weight of their numbers slowly enabled them street by street to advance through the city until the defenders finally ran out of projectiles. The end arrived on the tenth day, when the Selenuntians, who at last were out of options, fell back and made a futile last stand in the Agora. But after another obstinate fight, the surrounded defenders were all cut down. Diodorus then provides a vivid, but likely highly partisan account of the supposed outrage inflicted on the city and its surviving inhabitants by the Carthaginian troops. He contends that under the orders of Hannibal, the troops were allowed to sack the city. They plundered anything of value that could be found, while burning many Selenuntine buildings to the ground, with even their residents still inside. All those who they came across were put to the sword, and they showed no sign of compassion for neither women nor children. Diodor says that they even mutilated the dead, and some cut off their hands and attached them to their javelins or spears as a sort of trophy. By nightfall, the whole city was ablaze, the walls had been destroyed, and the streets were running with blood and filled with 16,000 corpses. Although their treasuries were carried off, the temples themselves were spared from any desecration. But the 5,000 women and children who had taken refuge in them were also hauled off as prisoners. Only 2,600 Selenuntians managed to escape death or enslavement, as they fled the city to safety at the nearest Greek city-state of Acragas. Also arriving there were Diocles and 3,000 hand-picked soldiers from Syracuse, who had been dispatched in advance with all speed to bring aid. But on learning of the fall of Selenus, Diocles remained at Acragas and instead sent ambassadors ahead to Hannibal, urging him to release the captives and to spare the temples of their gods. Hannibal responded that the Selenuntians, since they were incapable of defending themselves, would now live out their lives as slaves back in Carthage and that the gods had departed Selenus, as they were offended by the weakness of their inhabitants. A second delegation was then sent, this time led by Impetiones, who was a pro-Carthaginian Selenuntian. Because of this, he managed to obtain permission to ransom the prisoners and to eventually rebuild the city. With the destruction of Selenus, the mission that the Carthaginian Senate had entrusted to Hannibal was now fulfilled. But instead of returning to Carthage or negotiating a truce with the Greeks, Hannibal chose to attack one more Greek city-state in Sicily. And so, departing with his whole army from Selenus, his next target surely was no surprise to its inhabitants. Himera had been the cause of his ancestors' downfall, and so he was especially bent on raising it to the ground and getting his family's revenge. The city of Himera itself sat on top of a hill on the western bank of the river Himera, The hill is steep in the northern, western, and eastern sides, but gradually slopes to the south. 
There are additional hills to the west and south, and so when his army reached Tamara, Hannibal pitched a main camp upon the western one, while about a third of his forces made a camp on that to the south. Although Carthaginian casualties at Selenus weren't recorded, as we mentioned, modern estimates place his total army at about 40,000 soldiers. If you factor in a likely 25% deprivation following the 10-day assault, it is possible that he now had around 30,000 remaining troops. But at Amara, he was also joined by 20,000 additional soldiers from some of the Sickles and Sakani, which boosted his total strength to about 50,000 soldiers at that point. Hamera itself probably had around 5,000 soldiers, with no mercenaries at the moment to augment this number. Using the same tactics that had been so successful at Selenus, the Carthaginian army set up their siege engines and hit Hamera with a sustained, high-tempo assault. However, Hamera hadn't disregarded their city's defenses, and so their walls withstood the attack a lot better than had those of Selenus and no breaches could be made for the Carthaginian infantry to exploit. Therefore, Hannibal next turned to his sappers, who dug tunnels under the walls and collapsed sections of it by setting fire to the wooden support beams. This allowed the Carthaginian infantry to attack through the gap. But the Himerians defended themselves tenaciously and repulsed this assault as well, and then threw up makeshift walls to close the breaches. When night arrived, the Carthaginians were forced to abandon their attack. Meanwhile, when they had received word that Hannibal was at Himera, those 3,000 Syracusan troops under Diocles at Acragus made their way to bring aid. They were joined with 1,000 additional soldiers from Acragus and another 1,000 mercenaries, for a total force of 5,000. When they arrived that evening, the Himerians decided that marching out of the city and attacking the Carthaginians would be their best form of defense, rather than being shut in and defeated in an ignominious manner, as were the Selenuntians. So when the day came, they stationed guards on the walls and let out the rest of their soldiers, some 10,000 men in total, and launched a surprise attack on the Carthaginian lines, probably on the forces posted to the south of the city. The Carthaginians were initially startled by this unexpected tactic, and in their confusion, they even began to fight each other. Therefore, the numerically superior Carthaginian forces eventually were forced back in disorder to their encampment on the hills. According to Timaeus, the Carthaginians had 6,000 casualties here, whereas Ephorus states it was more than 20,000. Whatever the case, Hannibal sent in another wave of fresh soldiers, from those to the west of Himera. And in this counterattack, 3,000 Greeks were cut down, while the rest were driven back into the city. The battle had already come to an end when 25 triremes had arrived at Himera. These were those from Syracuse and their allies that had previously been in the eastern Aegean in aid of the Peloponnesians, but had been recalled, as we previously mentioned. Since the Carthaginian fleet was still at Machia, their arrival gave the Greeks command of the sea around Himera. So in order to nullify this disadvantage, Hannibal began a misinformation campaign by spreading false rumors that the Syracusans had marched out their entire army to bring aid to Himera, and that in response, he was planning to man his triremes at Machia and to sail on Syracuse itself while the city was undefended. Diocles believed this false intelligence, and so he decided that the best course of action now was for them to withdraw. 
He advised his fellow officers to evacuate as many of Himera's citizens as possible on their ships and to quickly sail them to Syracuse. Those left behind were instructed to hold out as best as they could and to wait for the fleet to return for them in a second wave. Although the Himerans complained indignantly at this, there was no other action that they could take to stop it from happening. So they hastily loaded the women and children onto the ships that night, while Diocles marched his own soldiers and half of the Himeran men overland to Syracuse. Those left behind spent the night under arms on the walls. When the morning came, ignorant that most of the Greek army had withdrawn, the Carthaginians repeated their attacks on Himera. Still, the city's reduced garrison fought bravely that day as they still had hope of survival and fully expected the ships to come back for them that night. They never did, though, and on the third day, the Carthaginian army finally broke through, when some Iberian troops managed to secure a gap in the wall and the sections of the wall flanking the gap. Then, the Carthaginian army stormed the city, and the Himerans were overran by the sheer weight of the enemy's numbers. The city supposedly fell, just as the Syracusan fleet was returning and was within sight on the horizon. Diodorus once more provides a lurid account of the outrages committed by the Carthaginian troops on the orders of Hannibal himself. With the Greek fleet as onlookers, the city of Himera was razed to the ground, and its famous temples were pillaged and then destroyed. All suppliants of these temples were dragged out and lit on fire. At some point, Hannibal supposedly ordered his men to stop the immediate killing of everyone that they came across, but to round them up as prisoners. Then, in a bloody memorial to his ancestors, he had the remaining 3,000 Himerans slaughtered at the very spot where it was said that Hamilcar had fallen. Whether or not Diodorus's colorful details of their sackings are true, in just three months, Hannibal did manage to capture the two Greek city-states of Selenus and Himera, avenging both their new ally, the Segestans, and the site of their previous defeat. But despite his advantageous tactical position, Hannibal did not choose to go after Acragus or Syracuse, the two Sicilian Greek city-states who were mainly responsible for his ancestors' previous humiliation at Himera. Instead, rather than pressing on and taking full advantage of the Sicilian Greeks' disarray, he disbanded his army and paid them off with the spoils of war. The Campanian mercenaries, who mostly led the assault, complained that they had been abused by their contingent commander and that their payment was not sufficient. So after they were discharged, they took service with Syracuse. In any case, Hannibal garrisoned Punic territory with sufficient enough troops and returned to Africa with the fleet. When he arrived at Carthage with much booty, the whole city honored him, as he had performed greater deeds than any general had before him. Incidentally, it was around this time when Carthage first started minting their own coins, taking the cue from the Greeks that it was a much easier way to pay their mercenaries. But since no treaties had been signed to signal a closure of hostilities, it was only a matter of time before fighting ensued once again. The Greeks, though, did not immediately respond to the sack of Himera with any official action against Carthage or Punic territory in western Sicily. That's because, despite the strictly limited nature of Hannibal's invasion, he had further destabilized the island. And so, from 409 to 407 BC, a lull fell on Sicily. During that time, the governments in Syracuse and Acragus licked their wounds and took only preventative measures against Carthaginian aggression by maintaining their defenses, repairing any issues with their walls, and expanding their fleets and armies. 
However, a wild card would appear two years later with the reappearance of the exiled Syracusan general, Hermocrates. In 407 BC, likely after returning from the Spartan assembly that had traveled into the Persian heartland to see King Darius, he finally sailed west to Sicily for the first time since his exile. And his command were five triremes and a thousand soldiers, financed by the Persian satrap Pharnabasis. Arriving at Messana, he added to his force 1,000 Himerians who had been driven from their home. The rest had returned, and near Himera, they built a new city called Thermae. In any case, Hermocrates then reached out to his friends in Syracuse to help him with his return to the city so he could assume a political position once again. But this failed, so he turned to Plan B. He hoped that by taking a more aggressive stance against Carthage, while those in Syracuse were not, he could cause the people to turn against their current leaders and to recall him in order to lead the Carthaginian resistance. And so he set out from Messana through the middle of Sicily and seized the destroyed Selenus. After he had a wall built around part of the city, he called for all of the Selenuntians who were still alive to come back to their ancestral homeland. In addition to some of these men, many others flocked to Selenus. Eventually, his total force swelled from 2,000 to 6,000 soldiers. With Selenus now as his base, he then began to lay waste to the territory of Machia. A force of defenders came rushing out, and in battle, the Greeks slew many of them, before forcing them back behind their walls. Next, the Greeks ravaged the territory of Panormus, and when they also came out for battle, about 500 of them were killed before they too were shut up behind their walls. Hermocrates then led his forces to the rest of Sicilian territory in Carthaginian control and laid waste to it in similar fashion, with little to no resistance. Because of his bold, aggressive actions, Hermocrates received commendation from his fellow Sicilian Greeks. Consequently, his plan ultimately worked, because after much discussion of him in the meetings of their assembly, it became evident that due to his budding reputation, the people of Syracuse now desired to receive him back from exile. So over the winter of 407-406 BC, he began to lay careful plans for his return. Despite the fact that Hermocrates had spent 407 BC attacking Punic cities, the Carthaginians were weary of taking further unilateral action in Sicily at this point. They must have known that the Syracusans had spent the last two years building up their forces and that they would need to find new allies if they were going to take them on. The question is who? Well, the obvious choice was Athens, and a discovery of a partial inscription at Athens confirms that indeed Carthage did choose to send envoys to make an alliance with the Athenians. According to the inscription, the Carthaginians received a warm welcome, and the Athenian boule made the recommendation for such an alliance if the ecclesia should ratify it. The boule also recommended that the people vote to dispatch their own diplomatic mission to Sicily in order to meet with the Carthaginian generals and to assess the situation. However, that is where the inscription tails off, and we don't know if this alliance was sanctioned, as it is not mentioned in any of the literary sources. Still, even if the Athenians had voted to join forces with Carthage, their finances had been stretched so thin by long years of conflict with Sparta and Syracuse that it wouldn't have been feasible for them to provide any practical assistance to Carthage anyways. Furthermore, they were still bitter and weary over their own humiliating defeat in Sicily, and they likely weren't quite ready to send resources to fight there again. Even so, 
The Athenians maintained diplomatic relations with the Carthaginians in a sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. The following year, in the spring of 406 BC, setting out from his base at Selenus, Hermocrates led his forces to the suburbs of Himera, which still laid in ruins. There, they pitched their camp and began to collect the bones of the Greek dead, and putting them upon wagons that they had built and embellished at great cost, they conveyed them to Syracuse. Since Hermocrates was still in exile and was forbidden from entering Syracusan territory, when they reached the border, he sent the bones forward with some of his troops. One of the chief men who opposed his return was Diocles, and he was generally believed to be the one responsible for Syracuse's lack of concern over the failure to bury their dead, as he had been more worried about withdrawing from the city that evening under the cover of darkness. So Hermocrates did this as a political calculation in order to gain favor with the people and to embarrass Diocles. When the bones were brought into the city, Diocles for some reason doubled down and objected to their burial. However, the majority of Syracusans favored it, and so after much civil discord, they not only buried the remains of the war dead, but they also turned out en masse to honor them in a burial procession. Unsurprisingly, the people voted to exile Diocles. Despite this, they didn't rescind Hermocrates' exile, as they were still weary, and rightfully so, that he might make himself tyrant. Even though he was disappointed, Hermocrates knew that this was not the appropriate time to resort to force to take the city, so he begrudgingly withdrew with his forces back to Selenus. But sometime later, his friends sent for him, and so he led 2,000 of his troops to the territory of Gela. There, he left behind most of his men, but took a small number of them into Syracusan territory, to the gate of Acredina, where he was met by some of his supporters. But when the Syracusans heard what was transpiring, they gathered in the Agora in mass under arms. And they slew both Hermocrates and most of his supporters in a street fight. Those who had not been killed were brought to trial and sentenced to exile. Consequently, some of those who had fought in the cohort of the fallen Hermocrates were falsely reported by their relatives as having been severely wounded while defending the city, although they hadn't been, so that they might not be given over to the wrath of the multitude. Among their number was an officer named Dionysius. With the death of Hermocrates, Syracusan ambassadors were sent to Carthage in order to negotiate a peace. But these diplomatic overtures essentially were ignored, which is likely the outcome that the Syracusans had expected. In any case, both sides began to prepare for an inevitable renewal of hostilities. Syracuse and Acragus both called on their allies, including Camarina, Gela, Masana, and further afield in Magna Graecia, and continued to hire mercenaries and ensure the walls of their cities were well prepared for any sieges. The Syracusans in particular expanded their fleet and even appealed to the Spartans for help. A Syracusan general named Daphnaeus was elected to lead the war effort, while the aforementioned Dionysius was to be a part of his army's command staff. Finally, as the Greeks collectively began to gather their army at Syracuse, they posted a fleet of 40 triremes near Eryx in western Sicily to watch for the northwards movement of the Carthaginian navy. Meanwhile, the Carthaginian senate once again offered the command of the coming expedition to Hannibal Mago. But he had already achieved his family's revenge, and since he was now in his mid-60s, he cited advanced age and refused the position. But after his kinsman, Himilco, was appointed as his deputy, he finally was coaxed into another go at it. And despite his initial hesitancy, he zealously set about making preparations and collecting together another sizable army. Aside from Carthaginian citizens who volunteered, 
Troops, once again, were levied from their allies in Africa, Spain, and Italy. They were recruited by certain Carthaginians who were held in high esteem in those parts and with large sums of money. When Hannibal's army finally assembled at Carthage, Diodor says that according to Timaeus, it was over 120,000 strong, while a forest reported 300,000. Both of these numbers were probably exaggerated, though, and modern estimates place it around 60,000. Whatever the case, a fleet of 120 triremes and 1,000 transports were immediately readied and equipped for the voyage to Sicily. The Carthaginians doubled the number of triremes this time, as only 60 had escorted the prior expedition, because with the return of their ships from the eastern Aegean, the Syracusan navy posed a greater threat to the success of this Carthaginian expedition. When everything was ready, three years after the first expedition, Hannibal and his younger colleague, Himilco, set out for a second time to Sicily in the summer of 406 BC. This time, though, fortune was not with them, as the Carthaginians would be met with an inauspicious start and with fierce resistance. First, Hannibal had sent ahead an advanced squadron of 40 triremes to Sicily, while the other 80 were being fitted out. But the Greek fleet of the same size stationed at Eryx came out to oppose them during their crossing of the Libyan Sea. In the long sea battle that followed, the Carthaginians lost 15 ships. Their total annihilation was only saved by nightfall, which allowed the other 25 to flee for safety to the open waters. It is not recorded how many losses the Greeks suffered, but it was presumably negligible. When word of their defeat reached Hannibal, he immediately ordered the rest of his fleet to set sail. A squadron of 30 ships sailed at a slower speed to protect his 1,000 transports full of men and supplies, while Hannibal personally led a vanguard of 50 triremes with the goal of preventing the Greeks from exploiting their current numerical advantage and to make the landing safe for the rest of his fleet. When Hannibal's squadron arrived in the vicinity of Punic-controlled Machia, the outnumbered Greek ships didn't come down from Eryx once again and didn't risk another battle. Therefore, as the rest of the Carthaginian expedition began to arrive, they were able to make a safe landing on Sicily. Hannibal then left his ships beached on the coast near Machia and Panormus, and led his men southeastwards through Punic territory to the Greek city-state of Acragas. Their march was unopposed. Meanwhile, the Acragans had rightfully assumed, because of their location closer to Punic territory, and the exceptional wealth inside their city, that they would be Hannibal's first target here. Unfortunately for them, though, the Syracusans still were negotiating alliances, dispatching emissaries to arouse the masses to fight for a common Sicilian Greek freedom, and amassing their allied and mercenary army. Therefore, there was not a joint Greek army to give the Acragans any support at the moment. So instead of facing the Carthaginians alone and heavily outnumbered in a pitch battle, they gathered all of their grain and other crops, all of their possessions from the countryside, and their entire population, around 200,000 people, within the city and prepared for a siege. At this point in his narrative, Diodorus goes off on a lengthy digression to explain the great prosperity and sacred buildings in Acragas. If you're interested, we discussed the Valley of the Temples in great detail in episode 58. But just to give you an idea of the scale of luxury that existed at Acragas, Diodorus says that at this point, they passed a decree that none of the guards who spent the nights at their posts watching the walls should have more than one mattress, one cover, one sheepskin, and two pillows. If this was the state of bedding in their military barracks, one can get an idea of the luxury which prevailed in their non-military living generally. 
In any case, the entire male population of the city, about 10,000, was armed and split into two groups. Some were posted on the walls, as we mentioned, but others were placed in reserve to relieve those as they became worn out and to plug any gaps that might be created by the inevitable Carthaginian assault. Although Sparta was unable to send government-sanctioned aid at this time, Acragas did hire the Spartan general Dexippus to lead their defensive efforts, and he recently just arrived with a band of about 2,300 mercenaries, including the 800 companions who previously served under Hannibal at Himera, to augment their local force for a total of about 12,300. Dexippus's mercenaries were either placed on the hill of Athena or the Acropolis, both of which were twin peaks strategically situated within the city's walls and overlooking the northern part of the city. After the final preparations were made, the Acragans awaited the Carthaginian army's arrival. When Hannibal and his forces finally made it to Acragas, they built two fortified camps. In one, they stationed about two-thirds of the army on the city's western side, on the right bank of Hypsas River, which was protected by a deep trench and a palisade and the other third on the city's eastern side, on the left bank of the Acragas River, which blocked the road to Gela. The Acragans did not oppose these activities, but stayed within their city's walls. When the fortified camps were set up, before commencing hostilities, Hannibal dispatched ambassadors to offer terms to the Acragans, stating that they would preferably become an ally of Carthage, or at the very least, to remain neutral while Carthage dealt with the other Greeks in Sicily. Both conditions were rejected by the Akragan government, though, so both sides settled down for a siege. Hannibal decided not to build circumventing walls, but to starve the Akragans into submission. However, after surveying Akragas' walls, the position of their city on higher ground made it difficult to assault directly or to storm from several directions at once. Fortunately, he, or more likely one of his men, noticed that a certain gate on the city's western side appeared more easily assailable than the others. So during the first day, Hannibal ordered his men to assault this position with two enormous siege towers. As they pressed from these towers, the Carthaginians managed to inflict casualties on the Akragan defenders. But after an all-day struggle, they could not force their way through the gate. And that night, the Akragans launched a counterattack and burnt the towers down. Hannibal quickly realized that he needed a new strategy, that he couldn't focus his efforts in just one place where the defenders could bunch up together and thwart him, but instead he needed to launch assaults in an increasing number of places to stretch their defenses thin. But in order to do this, he needed to find the necessary materials to make more siege weapons. So Hannibal then ordered his soldiers to tear down the tombs and other buildings outside the city's walls in order to make siege ramps. Although the Carthaginian soldiers were uneasy about desecrating tombs, they did as they were ordered. But just when these works had been quickly completed, Diodorus says the large tomb of the former Akragan tyrant Theron was struck by lightning. The soothsayers at once portended bad happenings, and indeed, a plague broke out in both Carthaginian camps. They lost many men, including their general Hannibal himself, while those who survived were in grievous distress, both from the unpleasantry of the plague and because they were convinced that they no longer had the gods on their side. Hannibal's younger deputy, Himilco, then assumed command of the army, and his first action was to restore the morale of his soldiers. He put a stop to the tomb-destroying activities, 
and Diodorus, taking his cue from Timaeus, records the questionable detail that Himilco, in order to appease the god's wrath and remove the plague, sacrificed a young boy to Baal, the Carthaginian god typically associated with the Greek Cronus. He also was said to have thrown some cattle into the sea, drowning them in order to supplicate Poseidon. Then, with the god's wrath, believed to have been appeased, Himilco ordered his men to continue building siege ramps, using the materials already collected. They also dammed the Hypsas River, the course of which made it act as a moat for Acragus, to gain better access to the city. Meanwhile, at about the same time that the Syracusans had received word that Hannibal was on his way to Acragus, allied troops had arrived from various city-states in southern Italy and Masana. Immediately, the Syracusan general Daphnaeus marched them with haste towards the interior and collected additional troops from Camarina and Gela. Altogether, Diodorus reports that this combined army numbered 30,000 hoplites and 5,000 cavalry, though it might have been larger, as lightly armed troops are not included in the tally. As they marched towards Acragas to break the siege, they were accompanied by 30 triremes that sailed along the shore. It's not sure if Daphnaeus knew about what was transpiring in the Carthaginian army. But when Himilco learned of the Greeks' approach, he dispatched his troops in their eastern camp, which was a third of his forces, to meet them, while the main army, the other two-thirds, stayed in their western camp and kept the garrison of Acragas in check. The Greek army was intercepted somewhere on the right bank of the Himera River. The actual battle site is unidentified and subject to much scholarly debate. The Carthaginian right wing, at first, managed to create difficulties for those stationed opposite of them, but the Syracusans on the Greeks' right wing scattered their opponents on the Carthaginian left before the Carthaginian right gained any decisive advantage. Diodorus doesn't provide a lot of tactical details, but the Greeks ultimately managed to win a hotly contested battle, and the Carthaginian army fled the field, leaving behind almost 6,000 of their dead. Daphnius might have crushed their whole army if he had pursued the fleeing Carthaginians all the way back to Acragas. But since his soldiers themselves were in disorder, he likely would have suffered many losses too. So he chose to regroup his men before giving chase. At the same time, as the fleeing Carthaginians rounded the northern side of Acragas, on the way to their western camp, those in the city clamored to be let out to attack them. But the Acragan generals, including the Spartan Dexippus, refused, as they feared a repeat of the Himera debacle a few years earlier in which they pursued the retreating Carthaginians only to run into a counterattack by the main army and were utterly destroyed. And so this hesitancy allowed the fleeing Carthaginian army to make it safely to their camp on the western side of the city. Still, the Greek victory had managed to lift the siege of the city, and the eastern camp of the Carthaginian army had now fallen into Greek hands. This gave the Greeks a favorable position against the Carthaginian army, with the initiative firmly in their hands. When Daphnaeus and his army arrived at the newly abandoned eastern encampment of the Carthaginians, they took up quarters there, and Dexippus and some of his mercenaries joined them. When they began to intermingle, the soldiers started to complain to each other that they had let such a perfect opportunity slip through their hands to crush the Carthaginians. And inevitably, gossip spread among the ranks that their generals had refused to attack them because they had been bribed by Himilco. As a result, an impromptu political council was held, and after great uproar, a Cameranian man named Menes openly accused the five Akragan generals of treason. This incited the mass of people, and before the accused had the opportunity to offer a defense, the soldiers began to throw stones and killed four of the generals. 
the fifth, a man named Argaeus, was spared because of his youth. Dexippus also was the object of verbal abuse, but the soldiers dared not to physically assault the Spartan. New generals were then elected to replace the five Acragans. Afterwards, the overall commander, the Syracuse and Daphnaeus, led forth the Greek army towards the main Carthaginian camp. But after his scouts reported that it had been fortified, he decided against a direct assault. Instead, he chose to cover the roads with his lightly armed troops and cavalry, and to continually harass the Carthaginians throughout the summer, by cutting off their supply lines, and by continuously skirmishing with them whenever they left their camp to forage for food. On the other hand, the Greek forces, both those in Daphnaeus' army and those inside Acragas, were kept well supplied by ship convoys carrying provisions from Syracuse. By the end of the summer, the Carthaginians began to face food shortages, and the mercenaries began to grow restless as starvation set in at the Punic camp. Himilco, though, managed to keep the army together, but with great difficulty. However, as winter approached, the situation grew from serious to desperate for the Carthaginians, and rumors began to spread of a possible mutiny in the army. Eventually, some of the mercenaries forced their way to Himilco's tent and demanded that the agreed-upon rations be handed over to them, and that if these were not given, they threatened to go over to the enemy. Luckily, Himilco had learned from some unspecified source that another supply convoy from Syracuse was on its way to Acragas, and by giving to the mercenaries as a pledge the gold and silver drinking cups of the Carthaginian citizens, he managed to convince them to stay put for a few more days so that he could commandeer it. He then sent word to the Carthaginian fleet at Machia and Panormus to prepare and send forth 40 triremes to attack and capture these supplies. Arriving from the west, they managed to surprise the Syracusan fleet escorting the supply convoy. Because they had grown complacent due to their command of the sea and did not expect the Carthaginians to man their fleet once again. As a result, the Carthaginians sank eight Greek vessels and pursued the rest of the beach. When the crews of the surviving Greek ships disembarked to save themselves, the Carthaginian fleet towed away the entire supply convoy. This completely reversed the situation. It solved the supply problems for Himilco, but also because the Acragans did not plant any crops of their own that year, thanks to the conflict, forcing them behind their walls, without outside supplies heading into the winter, it caused the Greeks now to face the threat of starvation. Eventually, likely because they considered their position now to be hopeless, the Campanian mercenaries in the Greek army, who had served years earlier under Hannibal, were secretly bribed by Himilco for 15 talents to flip over to the Carthaginian side once again. Rumors also swirled later that Dexippus too was bribed in order to convince his fellow Greeks to give up the siege. Whatever the case, the contingent from Magna Graecia also left Acragas and went back towards the Strait of Messana. After the departure of all of these troops, the Greek generals met and decided to make a survey of their supply of grain in the city in order to see how long they could last, and they discovered that it was quite low and not even adequate to feed the whole Greek army for very long, let alone the entire population. The siege had lasted for eight months so far, and so the rapidly dwindling food stocks persuaded the Akragan authorities to abandon the city. At once, orders were issued to leave on the next night. So in mid-December of 406 BC, around 40,000 men, women, and children deserted Acragas. Diodorus provides a harrowing account of their departure. With much lamentation and tears, they carried whatever personal valuables they could as they left behind their ancestral homeland. He describes not only their abandonment of so opulent a city, 
but also of many human beings. Because as everyone now only thought for their own safety, the sick and the elderly were left behind. And some of Kragan diehards refused to abandon their city. So they too stayed behind to continue the fight. Those who left were given armed escort by the army as they marched east on the road towards Gela. Once there, they eventually went to Syracuse. The following morning, Himilco had little difficulty taking the nearly empty city of Acragus. Diodorus, again through Timaeus, describes the supposed Carthaginian atrocities that were committed in the process. Himilco supposedly ordered his men to put to sword any who resisted, and even those who did not, including the sick and elderly. They even pulled out those who had fled for safety to the temples and cut them down. He also describes how Himilco and the Carthaginians thoroughly plundered the richest city in all of Sicily by seizing all works of art and other precious objects from their abandoned temples and homes and shipping them back to Carthage. Included was the famous Bull of Phalaris, which we discussed back in episode 14. However, this is one of the few occasions when we possess a document, a Punic inscription from the Tophet at Carthage, which although incomplete, provides a Carthaginian view of these events. Towards the end of it, the inscription reads, quote, And they seized a cragant, referring to a cragus, and they established peace with the citizens of Naxos. End quote. Despite the limited nature of the information that it imparts, it does stand as an important reminder of how one-sided and partial our usual historical view of ancient events actually is. So once again, when using any Greek or Roman sources who talk about the atrocities of their so-called barbarian enemies, always take it with a massive grain of salt. As winter now set in, Himilco chose not to completely demolish the city so that his troops could dwell in it. It is not known if the Carthaginians had received any reinforcements during the winter to make up for their losses, but since Himilco had left the Punic fleet at Machia and his army was now at Acragus, they had become dependent on a long supply line. The Carthaginian army would stay there until the following spring, as Himilco began to make preparations for his next target, Gela. Meanwhile, when news of what happened at Acragus made its way around the island, some Sicilian Greeks fled to Syracuse, thinking that they would best offer them protection, while others went with their children and wives and all their possessions northwards to southern Italy. When the Acragan refugees finally arrived at Syracuse, some made accusations of treason against Daphnaeus and the other Syracusan generals. As a result, the rest of the Sicilian Greeks began to censure the Syracusans for electing the kind of leaders through whose fault the whole of Sicily now ran the risk of destruction. Nevertheless, in the Syracusan assembly, a great fear hung over them, and when no one offered any good counsel on how to prosecute the war, Dionysius, who had fought bravely at Acragus, stepped up and supported the Acragans. He accused the Syracusan generals of betraying their fellow Greeks to the Carthaginians, and spurred forth the people to exact punishment on them immediately, instead of waiting for the slow and futile procedure that was prescribed by their laws. At this suggestion, the archons fined him for breaking the assembly's rules against decorum, though his wealthy friend Philistus offered to pay any fine and urged him to continue. So he then pushed forward even more vigorously, and denounced the rest of Syracuse's most renowned citizens, presenting them as friends of oligarchy. Consequently, he advised them to choose as new generals, men not from the most influential citizens, but rather those who were most favorable to the people's cause. Using the right type of language and tone, he was able to stir the anger of the assembly, and so they immediately deposed Daphnaeus and the other generals, and appointed replacements, with Dionysius among them. 
The Akragan refugees left Syracuse after this and immediately found shelter in Leontini. And Dionysius started scheming to expand his power. His first action was to get the assembly to vote on the recall of its political exiles. These men were former followers of Hermocrates, like himself, and therefore would be potential allies. But he cloaked his intentions with the argument that if they were allowed to return to Syracuse, in appreciation for a second chance, they would fight with eagerness against the Carthaginians. In actuality, though, Dionysius knew that these men would owe their appreciation not to the Syracusan people, but to him. The majority voted in favor of this measure, and none of his colleagues in office dared to oppose him in the matter, both because of the eagerness shown by the majority and because they feared making him an enemy. At some point a little later in the winter, an appeal from Gela reached Syracuse, asking for them to send aid as their citizens were now engaged in a political feud. So Dionysius marched to Gela with 2,000 hoplites and 400 cavalry. When he arrived, he found its wealthiest citizens engaged in strife with the people. It's not stipulated what they were fighting over, but it likely had something to do with how they should handle the impending Carthaginian threat. Gela's defenses at that point were under the command of the Spartan Dexippus. In any case, Dionysius decided to take advantage of the situation. In their assembly, he accused the Galoan generals of trying to make themselves tyrants over the people and managed to get them executed. He then gave his soldiers double pay from the confiscated property of the dead Galoan generals and paid the wages that were owed to the guards of the city under the command of Dexippus. In this manner, he won over not only the loyalty of those he brought with him, but also the soldiers in Gela. Although he was unable to persuade Dexippus himself to become his ally, he had gained the approval of the Galoan people, who believed him to be responsible for their liberation from their wealthy wannabe tyrants. Consequently, the Galoan people dispatched ambassadors who sang his praises to the Syracusan people and reported decrees in which they honored him with rich gifts. With Gela's affairs in order, Dionysius then made preparations to return to Syracuse, when word reached him that the Carthaginians were on their way. And so the people begged him to remain and not to let the same fate happen to them as did the Akragans. He replied that he must get back to his people, but promised to return speedily with an even larger force. When he arrived back at Syracuse, he happened upon a gathering of citizens who were leaving the theater after enjoying a play. And as the people came to greet him, he promptly accused his fellow generals of misconduct, specifically of plundering public funds and letting the soldiers go unpaid, all while the enemy was making preparations for a war on the scale of which they had never seen before. He then said that he had suspected all along that they were taking bribes from them, but now he knows for certain that this is true, because Himilco had sent a herald to him offering the same amount of money as what his colleagues were taking but that he alone chose not to cooperate with the enemy. Because of this, he said he did not wish to serve any longer as general alongside people who are willing to sell out their country for money, and so he has returned only to lay down his office. This ploy stirred up the people, and in a meeting of the assembly the following day, they began to clamor for him not only to remain in office, but to depose the others and make him the sole general. They argued that the magnitude of the war necessitated such an instance, and they even cited as example how Gelon was able to defeat the Carthaginians at Ahimera as a general with the supreme power almost some eight decades earlier. As for their alleged traitorous generals, they determined that their fate would be dealt with once the Carthaginian menace had been taken care of. The people voted to approve these measures. 
With his supreme power as sole general, Dionysus' first action was to propose a decree that the pay of the mercenaries be doubled, arguing that this would make them more eager not to defect to Himilco, though it also ensured their loyalty to him as well. After the assembly was adjourned, there was still quite a bit of Syracusans who were not happy with what had been done. So Dionysius began to take steps to protect himself against the people changing their mind. He immediately issued orders that all men of military age up to 40 years old should provide themselves rations for 30 days and report to him under arms at Leontini, which at that time was an outpost of Syracuse that was full of exiles and foreigners, who he had hoped would be on his side. But his plan, though, never really anticipated the majority of the Syracusans even coming to Leontini. One night, while he was encamped in the countryside on his way to the outpost, he pretended that he was the object of some plot, and so he had his personal servants raise a tumult and uproar. After these staged theatrics, he took refuge and spent the night in the Acropolis, where he kept the fires burning and summoned to him his most trustworthy soldiers. At daybreak, a military assembly was held, and he relayed to the people the details of the plot against him, and so he promptly got them to give him a bodyguard of 600 hand-picked men. Diodorus says that he did this in imitation of Pisistratus when he made himself tyrant of Athens. For his bodyguards, Dionysius selected poorer men who were bold in spirit and fiercely loyal. He provided them with costly arms, and he eventually increased their number to a thousand with the addition of 400 mercenaries. By this point, all the exiles had returned, and so he enlisted them as his supporters. Upon his return to Syracuse, he took up his residence in the Syracusan naval yard and then made changes in the military posts by giving commands to his most faithful followers. In particular, he dismissed Dexippus and sent him back to Greece. He also immediately married the daughter of Hermocrates and gave his sister in marriage to Polyxenus, the brother of Hermocrates' wife. Finally, he summoned an assembly and convinced the people to put to death his most influential opponents, including Daphnaeus, Demarcus, and all of the other dismissed Syracusan generals. With these actions, the tyranny of Dionysius had officially begun. Although some were offended, they were compelled to keep quiet as the city was thronged with mercenary soldiers, and the Carthaginians were on their doorstep with a huge army. While Dionysius was busy with scheming his way to absolute power, the Carthaginian army had made preparations to attack Ella. When spring came, they destroyed the city entirely and left their winter base at Acragus. Himilco marched along the coast of Gela and set up camp near the sea to the west of the city, fortifying it with a trench and palisade, as they expected Dionysius eventually to come to the aid of the Galoans. In the meantime, the Galoans had voted on removing their women and children to Syracuse because of the magnitude of the expected danger, but the women insisted on staying put and fled to the altars in the Agora and begged to share the same fortune as the men. So they yielded to them, and no one was forced to evacuate the city. While they waited for Dionysus' army to arrive, those at Gela divided into detachments and kept up an active defense by going into the countryside and harassing the Carthaginian foragers. While their camp was being set up, the Carthaginians spent some time plundering the countryside and gathering provisions. In particular, there was a colossal bronze statue of Apollo that sat just outside the city that they seized and sent off to Tyre, the mother city of Carthage. Afterwards, Himilco attempted to storm the city before any Syracusan help could arrive. 
the Carthaginians launched multiple waves of assault, and at one point, their battering rams were able to make breaches at a certain point on the western side of the city. However, the Galoans defended themselves brilliantly, as all men were placed under arms, either on the walls or providing defense in depth and other tasks with all eagerness. Basically, they met the Carthaginian attack so stoutly that although their city lacked natural defenses and they were without allies, and their walls were failing in a number of places, they were not dismayed at the danger which threatened them. Ultimately, they kept the enemy at bay all day, and that evening, they were able to use the cessation and hostilities to repair the portions of the walls which fell during the day. The help of the women and children in repairing the walls was so invaluable that the Carthaginians had to start from the beginning the following morning. Meanwhile, the political machinations of Dionysius had delayed him from being at Gela when the Carthaginians arrived, but he still managed to gather together an army made up of not only Syracusans of military age, but also their Italian and Sicilian Greek allies and mercenaries. Diodorus reports, using Timaeus's numbers, that there were at least 30,000 hoplites, 4,000 cavalry, and a fleet of 50 triremes. With a force of such size, he naturally marched at a slow pace from Syracuse to Gela. But the arrival of his army in the vicinity promptly caused the Carthaginians to lift their siege, at least for the time being. They encamped at the mouth of the Gela River, on its western bank, opposite the Carthaginian camp. Here, they could direct both land and naval operations. For about three weeks, the Greek army remained inactive. Instead, Dionysius harassed the Carthaginians with his lightly armed troops, and did not allow them to forage over the countryside for food and with his cavalry and fleet, he cut them off from their supply lines. These tactics wore down the Carthaginians, and likely would have been disastrous for them if he continued, but instead, he chose to force Himilcal into a pitched battle, likely because the soldiers were not in favor of a war of attrition, and demanded action. The Carthaginian army probably outnumbered the combined Greek force, so Dionysius had to use strategy to neutralize his enemy's advantage. In doing so, he devised a complex battle plan, to lead a three-pronged attack that had to follow a precise timetable. The Carthaginian cavalry was posted on the landward side, while the Campanians and Iberians were on the seaward side, with the Libyans in between inside the camp. Dionysius, observing that a seaborne force could attack the camp from the south, where it was open and lightly defended, decided on the following course. A group of a few thousand lightly armed troops would land on the beach south of the Carthaginian camp, under the command of his brother, Leptines, and attack the south end of the camp from the west, while 4,000 Italian hoplites would march along the coast and attack the south end of the camp from the east. At the same time, the Greek cavalry, supported by 8,000 hoplites, would engage the Carthaginian forces on the northern side of the camp. Finally, once the enemy was fully committed on their flanks, Dionysius, with a reserve force of Galoan hoplites, would sally out from the western gate of Gela, where the siege engines were stationed, and attack the Carthaginian camp. The complexities of this strategy, known as the double envelope maneuver, depended on precise coordination between the three Greek detachments, which itself required a certain amount of luck, along with skilled subordinates and disciplined soldiers. As things turned out, their coordination was horrible. The seaborne troops under Leptines managed to achieve total surprise, and together with the hoplites attacking along the coast, broke into the unfortified side of the Carthaginian camp from the south. But while this group fought against the Campanian and Iberian mercenaries, the northern group was slow in arriving and did not launch their attack in time. 
This gave the Campanians and Iberians time to defeat the Greeks attacking in the south, where Leptines lost a thousand men before giving way and retreating back to Gela. They then gave chase, but missiles fired from the Greek ships halted their pursuit, which allowed those fleeing to reach the city of Gela safely. Some of the Gloan soldiers also came out and aided the fleeing Greeks, but most held back in the city because they feared leaving the city's walls undefended. Meanwhile, the northern Greek detachment finally arrived and attacked the camp and drove back the Libyans, who had come out to oppose them. At this juncture, Himilco and the Carthaginian citizens counterattacked, and the Campanians and Iberians also came up, routing the northern prong of the attack, with the loss of another 600 Greeks. Similarly, the force of Dionysius got entangled in the narrow streets of the city amidst the population, and never even made it out the gate. After the fighting ceased, Himilco's army had control over all the territory around Gela, while Dionysus and his forces had barely made it back safely behind the city's walls. In this precarious position, he immediately called a meeting of his friends and took counsel regarding their next course of action. While the Greek army was far from beaten, its morale had suffered badly. They also were likely unwilling to resume the harassing campaign against the Carthaginian foragers and supply ships. But with their current position, if they chose to clash with Himilco's numerically superior forces once again, they likely would achieve the same result, or worse. Also, he probably realized that summer would soon come to an end, and if the Greeks garrisoned in Gela were bottled up by the Carthaginians and were besieged all winter, this would cut him off from Syracuse. Although his political position at home was secure, it was not absolute, and so his absence might lead to his political enemies taking the chance to stage a coup and depose him. So with all of this in mind, Dionysius made the decision to evacuate Gela. He first dispatched a herald, requesting a truce to bury the dead on the next day. However, he instead slipped out that very night with most of his army and the population of Gela, leaving the battle dead unburied. A group of 2,000 lightly armed troops stayed behind, with orders to keep lit large campfires in order to dupe the Carthaginians into thinking that the Greeks were still in the city. The next morning, they also marched out from Gela and set out to join the rest of Dionysius' army. After the Carthaginians realized what had taken place, they entered and plundered the near-empty city. Meanwhile, Dionysius led the Galoans and his army to Camarina. When they reached the city, he also ordered its population to evacuate, probably for the same reasons that he did with Gela. The strategic problem for Dionysus had not changed, because getting stuck in a siege at Camarina might still mean risking political disaster in Syracuse. And so the whole population moved out, carrying whatever they could, while others fled with only their parents and children and paying no attention to their valuables. Some, though, who were elderly or suffered from illness, were left behind because they had no relatives or friends to help them. Pursued by the fear of the Carthaginian army, but not the Carthaginians themselves, the refugees from Gela and Camarina headed towards Syracuse, as the countryside now teemed with the population of two Greek cities driven into exile. His rapid surrender of Acragas and Gela was detrimental to the reputation of an aspiring war leader, even if it was based on sound military reasoning and correct political judgment. But the march was slow, and the suffering of the elderly, women and children on the road affected the mood of the soldiers escorting the throng. Not only were they filled with pity at the lot of the unfortunate victims, but an anger towards Dionysius began to flare up. Very quickly, rumors began to spread among their ranks about his motives. 
In their estimation, Dionysius had abandoned two easily defendable cities without any compelling military reason. The army was mostly intact and ready to fight, and the fleet held command of the sea, while there was no shortage of provisions at neither Gela nor Camarina. Furthermore, they began to question why Dionysius had been slow to come to Gela when that city first came under Carthaginian attack, and at the battle why his most loyal soldiers, the mercenaries, did not suffer any loss, while the other detachments were mauled. Finally, the Carthaginians at Gela were not coming after the refugees as they should have been, and instead were letting the opportunity to catch the Greeks off balance slip away. Therefore, the troops grew convinced that Dionysius had made a secret pact with Himilco and intended to rule over Syracuse, using the fear of Carthage as his cause and his mercenaries as his tool. As rumors to that effect began to spread among the Greek masses, many also began to contemplate the removal of Dionysius from power by any means necessary. The Italian Greeks were the first to take action. They had suffered the most casualties at Gela, and so they left the army and marched off to Messana. The cavalry of Syracuse, made up of noblemen and rich former oligarchs, was tasked with keeping watch along the road, and they considered assassinating Dionysius. But he was too well guarded by his mercenaries for them to even find an opportunity. So some of them left the army and rode in haste to Syracuse. When they entered the city, they gained admittance into the naval dockyards without suspicion, as the guards knew nothing of the events at Gela. There, they proceeded to plunder the house of Dionysius, which was filled with much silver, gold, and other costly items. In the process, they abused his wife, likely raping her, as Plutarch mentions that she later would commit suicide from her shame. Diodorus says that they did this because it was the surest way to anger the tyrant, and therefore his vengeance would guarantee that all of the conspirators would stick by each other. Finally, after coming out of his residence, they began to spread rumors that the Greeks had been defeated and that Dionysius had fled. After securing the city, they shut the gates against all outsiders. Dionysius was now in a tight spot, caught between the hostile Carthaginians in the west and the rebels in the east who had occupied Syracuse, his political base and safe haven and if the Carthaginians chose to attack, they would probably have prevailed over the diminished Greek army. But the speedy action of Dionysius, combined with Carthaginian inactivity and rebel incompetence, saved the day for him. Dionysius picked out 600 hoplites and 100 cavalrymen from his most trustworthy supporters and pressed towards Syracuse, leaving behind the rest of his army to guard the refugees in their journey. Dionysius and his hand-picked forces covered a distance of about 46 miles and reached the city in the dead of night. Upon their arrival, he found that the conspirators' attempt to take control of the city was clumsy, as they had shut the gates of Acredina, but left them unguarded. So he piled up reeds brought from the marshes and lit them on fire. When the gate was burnt down, they entered the city and found that not only did the rebels neglect to man the gates properly, but they also had not organized the remaining citizens for battle. So that as they marched through the city, it was only a small number of rebels in the Agora who opposed Dionysius and his forces. They were surrounded and most were killed. Then, Dionysius took his forces through the city and killed any of those who came out to resist them. He even entered the houses of those known to be hostile towards him. Some he had killed, while others were arrested and later executed or exiled. Those who managed to get away fled the city to gather at Anessa and seize the sickle town of Etna. At daybreak, the refugees of Gela and Camarina finally reached Syracuse, 
But since they were distrustful of Dionysius and were no longer willing to support or live under his rule, they too departed Syracuse and joined the Acragan refugees at Leontini. Dionysius had managed to secure Syracuse, but he was not out of danger just yet. The Sickles were neutral, but the Greeks at Leontini were hostile, and the Carthaginians were now near Camarina and were within striking distance of Syracusan territory. If Himilco managed to persuade the Sickles and the discontented Greeks at Leontini to turn against Syracuse, Dionysius might once again face internal turmoil at home. But after taking and sacking Camarina, the Carthaginian army was in no hurry to move on to Syracuse. Himilco marched his army at a leisurely pace, and as they encamped by the marshes on the route to Syracuse, a plague struck the Carthaginians once again, and over half of his army would succumb to it. Diodorus likely provided an account of this plague, but there are missing portions in his text. In any case, the stress of these circumstances caused Himilco to send a herald to Syracuse to dictate his terms for peace. Dionysius was glad to comply, because Carthaginian inactivity at this time began to become politically embarrassing for him. As he had been elected a supreme commander to fight the Carthaginians, who now showed little interest in fighting. Since Himilco held the strategic advantage, the peace terms were understandably favorable to the Carthaginians. According to the treaty, Carthage kept full control of the Punic cities in western Sicily, while the Alemian and Sicani cities in the center were now to be considered in the Carthaginian sphere of influence. The Greeks were allowed to return to Selinus, Himera, Acragas, Gela, and Camarina, but these cities were to remain unfortified and must pay tribute to Carthage. The Sickles and the inhabitants of Leontini and Messana were to remain free of both Carthaginian and Syracusan influence, and thus able to live under the laws of their own making. Dionysius was officially acknowledged by Carthage as ruler of Syracuse. Finally, both sides agreed to return all prisoners and ships captured during the campaign. Essentially, Carthaginian authority over the indigenous and Punic areas of West and Central Sicily was officially recognized, and it left them in control of all of their recent conquests, with Selenus, Himera, Acragas, Gela, and Camarina now being vassals who were required to send annual tribute to Carthage. The goal for Carthage probably was not the conquest of Sicily, but to stop the raiding of Punic lands by the Greeks. In fact, it was raids by Hermocrates of Syracuse, based in Selenus, that had prompted Carthage to launch the war in the first place. Therefore, this treaty ensured that if Syracuse chose to renew aggression, it would have to invade Greek or Sickle lands before reaching Carthaginian territory. And so, Carthage had gained strategic depth in Sicily. The tribute from the subject Greek cities would also help maintain Carthaginian garrisons in Sicily, if Carthage chose to station any. It's possible that Dionysius had been in communication with Himilco the entire time and agreed to a treaty favorable to Carthage in exchange for peace and official recognition of his authority. This might even be considered highly probable based on the future actions of Dionysius. On the other hand, Himilco had succeeded in expanding Carthaginian control over Sicily to its largest extent, and so this might be the best that Dionysius could have expected in any peace negotiations. In any case, the Carthaginians left Sicily soon after the treaty was signed, and the various Greek refugees returned to repopulate Selenus, Acragas, Himera, Gela, and Camarina. However, these cities never reached their former prominence and never again threatened the power or preeminence of Syracuse. Therefore, it is entirely possible that Dionysius and Himilclo had played a fixed game meaning that the Carthaginians were allowed to plunder the potential rivals of Syracuse in exchange for setting Dionysius in power, 
but this can only be speculated on in absence of Carthaginian records. In any case, following the end of the Second Greco-Punic War, at a time of mutual weakness, there was a general peace in Sicily. While the plague was carried back to Africa, where it ravaged Carthage and weakened them for the better part of the next decade, Dionysius busied himself with the strengthening of his tyranny. Eventually, the two strongest powers in the central Mediterranean would come to blows again. But before we get there, we need to return to the Aegean and look at how Carthage's friend Athens and Syracuse's ally Sparta are faring. So join me next time on The History of Ancient Greece, Episode 106, Frustrations and Poor Decisions, Part 2. Thank you.